if you're somebody who's going to stay in property, it makes all the sense in the world to know 1031 and understand it because it's a very useful arrow in your quiver in increasing your investment returns. By keeping the money working for you, you'll do far better than taking the money out. Welcome to the Lessons in Real Estate show, bringing you information directly from industry leaders in multifamily and commercial real estate. Each week, Anthony Pinto interviews top multifamily experts and digs into the hard lessons learned on their pathways to success. We get real to give you a more comprehensive picture and help you avoid pitfalls others won't tell you about. You'll learn about raising money, growing your portfolio, and attracting investors to your cause. And now your host, Anthony Pinto. Are you in the military, interested, but don't know how to get started in real estate investing? I get it. I was in the exact same boat. But I have good news for you. We have content made just for you. If you head over to our website at pintocapitalinvestments.com, you can hear about how I made the decision to start buying investment properties literally hundreds of feet underwater on a submarine. That's pintocapitalinvestments.com. What you hear for the show, so let's get into it. Hey learners and welcome to another edition of the Lessons in Real Estate show. I am your host Anthony Pinto and today our guest is Michael Brady. Michael is the Executive Vice President of Madison 1031. They are a national qualified intermediary for tax deferred exchanges pursuant to the Internal Revenue Code 1031 or 1031 exchanges if it's more commonly known. As a uh, certified exchange specialist and attorney, his responsibilities include consulting with clients and their advisors to provide guidance on the regulations affecting 1031 exchanges, as well as overseeing Madison 1031 exchanges, national sales and marketing efforts. He's also been an attorney and been doing this for over 25 years. So regardless, he's got a lot to add to this show. So really excited to have him on. Michael, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Anthony. This is great. Absolutely. So you, you, you got a, a lot there to, to uh, kind of break down your, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, so you've got a lot of knowledge. So anything else you want to add to your bio there before we kind of hit the main topic, which is 1031 exchanges? Yeah, I mean, I've been, a, like you said, I've been a, a dirt lawyer, right? A real estate lawyer for roughly 26 years now. Um, and I've done thousands of transactions. As a qualified intermediary, I got involved in this space in 2005. I had done a number of exchanges for clients you know, before that. Um, but during the course of my career, we've helped people defer over a billion dollars in taxation, uh, which is a pretty powerful tool. And really, our, our clients have certainly benefited from it and have gone out and basically leveraged up and bought bigger, better properties and um, have really taken advantage of what we look at as a term-free, interest-free loan from levels of government to buy property essentially mm -hmm. perfect well i mean that's amazing i mean 26 years of, of being a real estate attorney is is incredible in of itself but a billion dollars in 1031 exchanges i mean it definitely says a lot to to your track record but to your level of experience as well because i i can imagine as we get into this you're going to have a lot of ups and downs and and lessons learned from 1031 exchanges in, in your clients so so let's just start with the basics what exactly is a 1031 exchange yeah, so most importantly, let's understand what we're looking at. So if you are invested in any type of investment property, that could either be you know, an owner-occupied building where you're operating a business or a rental property, a multifamily you know, or commercial office building or even a, a net lease, you know, retail property. When you sell that property, 
at a profit, you'll have to pay taxes on that profit. And the taxes, if you own the property for at least a year and a day, uh, for federal tax purposes, you get a long-term capital gain rate that's more beneficial than paying income tax rates. It's a lower rate, right, when you have long-term capital gain, but it's still pretty significant. You know, the rate roughly goes from about 15% to, if you include the net investment income tax, 23.8% uh, for federal tax purposes. Mm -hmm. On top of that, if you've depreciated your property and you own the investment property you, you have, um, you, the depreciation that you've taken as a deduction during the course of your ownership gets recaptured and the real estate portion of that will be taxed at a rate of 25%. Okay. Then on top of it, depending on where you your property is or where you you live, you will pay state income taxes, which can be, you know, if you're in California, it's, you know, over you know double digits, and uh, I'm based in New York. We're pretty close to double digits, but we're closer to like nine percent roughly. And the cities also can have income taxes as well. So like the city of New York has a marginal rate that caps out at about three point six eight percent. So you're talking about you're taking one third or more of your profit off the table when you sell a property, right? So Uncle Sam is there. They haven't helped you with the property whatsoever while you owned it, right? They didn't help you evict tenants. They didn't help you fix the toilets. But at the end of the day, they're there. They're your silent partner, as uh, my colleague Alex always says. They're your silent partner, and they're going to collect, uh, you know, a check when you when you close on this property. So, the downside of that is, of course, nobody wants to pay taxes, right? I, very few. I think there's very few people, if any, want to pay taxes. But on top of that, it's a lost investment opportunity because when you pull this money, this one third of your profit off the table, that's one third less you have to reinvest. And if you think about that, it's not just the one third. You can leverage that one third as well, right? So let's take, uh, let's say you had a million dollars, right, that to reinvest, but you had to pay taxes of three hundred thousand dollars. So now you only have seven hundred thousand dollars to reinvest. Now you know that's bad enough. But what if you had that extra three hundred thousand dollars? Now you have a million dollars of equity to reinvest, and you can leverage that seventy-five percent LTV. You know, that gets you, you know, uh, for a million dollars, you can get $4 million of property, you know, as opposed to if you had $700,000, you're only talking about $2.1 million of property, right? Uh, actually, $2.8 million of property, right, yeah. sorry. Uh, you know, so it's a significant difference. So that that's really what the power of what a 1031 exchange will allow you to do, because when you're doing that, if you're able to exchange one property for another, you get to defer all those taxes. Right. Okay. Depreciation recapture, federal taxes, net investment income tax, state, local income taxes, all gets deferred, kicked down the road until another day, and you get to use all of your proceeds to buy bigger and better property. Sounds great to me. <laughs> so, so tell me then, as as individuals, you know, who have a real estate portfolio may may not have one at all. You know, this this idea of a ten thirty one exchange is kind of far in the future. It's like at the end of you know, the exit strategy when you go to sell the property. So why does it behoove us to kind of understand and, and get into a 1031 exchange now when we may not have properties or may not be at the time to start selling our, our current portfolio? Well, I, I think it's something you want to consider when you're looking at properties, right? So, you know, nobody is going to, I shouldn't say nobody. It's very rare these days that somebody's going to hold the property for 30 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, it happens, but, it, you know, most investors stay are looking to get out sooner. So um, you want to look at that horizon and realize that, you know, what you're, it's part of your exit strategy. 
You know, at some point the property is going to appreciate. Uh, you're going to get that offer, especially if you've managed the property well, you have good tenants, it's generating cash flow. You'll have an offer at some point and you don't want to be caught ham-handed and surprised by what the taxes are. Uh, and if you're somebody who's going to stay in property, it makes all the sense in the world to know 1031 and understand it because it's a very useful arrow in your quiver in increasing your investment returns. By keeping the money working for you, you'll do far better than taking the money out. It's like, you know, in uh, if you know, like investing in an IRA or investing in, um, you know, 401k, that's, uh, you know, uh, not Roth, obviously, but if it's uh, you invest in one of those investment vehicles, the whole strength of that is that you're not paying taxes currently. You're getting the, the present value of your money right away to invest in the market and generate outsized returns. And you'll pay taxes down the road at some point that will, uh, you know, um, hopefully be at a lower rate. But at that point, you've, you've made use of the money and have benefited from it. Okay. So, so I guess it, it, it behooves you to understand where you're, where you're going down the path and, and, and set yourself up for any future properties and, and saving taxes. So, you know, we, you, you've spoken a lot about what are the great benefits of having 1031 exchanges, obviously the tax savings you get from it, being able to use that for, you know, better leverage. You know, why wouldn't an individual want to use a 1031 exchange if they have the option to? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, anybody who's doing a flip, Right, so any of your your listeners out there who are in that buy you know buy fix up flip model, well, ten thirty one is not really designed for you. It's help. You have to have the property. You have to hold the property for productive use in a trade business or for investment. And so the IRS and and the statute makes the distinction between property held for investment versus property held for resale. Property held for resale is specifically excluded from the benefits of ten thirty one exchanges. So. Um, Fix, fix up and flip doesn't work. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, uh, anybody that has cash flow needs, right? So I talk to exchanges quite frequently. Yeah, they've made a lot of money, but now, you know, their kids need to go to college, right? And they need mm -hmm. the, that college tuition money. Or, you know, they've had uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has created cash flow issues for probably a good portion of the population, you know? So, Obviously, that's not ideal if to kind of reinvest. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm trying to think who else might not benefit from the exchange. Um, you know, if, if you were going to, uh, the only other scenario I can see is if you were going to um, going, if you had the opportunity to invest in a qualified opportunity zone, well, that's a different vehicle. And there are people who specialize in that. That's not something we do, but, mm -hmm. you know, it's something to look at. You know, there are some pretty powerful benefits to doing an opportunity zone it's kind of i do a, a presentation which i call rumble in the tax jungle the qualified opportunity zone versus the 1031 exchange and we go through the back and forth of which is better and, and the answer is it really depends on your investment objectives but if you're a developer uh who is already in those markets well the qualified opportunity zone has a lot of benefits that you know the 1031 exchange may not offer you right and that, and that makes sense so so basically you're saying if it the buy and hold strategy is the strategy to use with a 1031 exchange, right? Um, not anything where you're going to be, you know, flipping properties or like kind of getting a quick profit off of properties for the long term, the term hold, buy and hold. So, so walk me through how this, how this works. Let's say that, you know, I have 
you know, one or two, three properties and I want to get a large apartment building and I want to sell all these properties that I have, how, how do I go about actually going through a 1031 exchange? Yeah, one thing I just want to back up, I want to add also developers, right, should also not do 1031 exchanges, any kind of deal on real property. So that's, that's the other, kind of like the fix and flip. If you're basically taking vacant land and you're going to build 100 condo units, you know, you're not eligible to, to exchange those units. You know, that's probably helpful resale. But uh, getting into your question, so how does it actually work? Okay, so for tax purposes, there's, there's two realities. The tax reality, to do a 1031 exchange, you have to swap property with somebody else. Right, so if you had a property that I liked and you, uh, I had a property that you liked, we could trade deeds, that's automatically a 1031 exchange. We'll both defer taxes by doing that. That's very, very rare. So they created this structure using a qualified intermediary, which is what Madison Exchange does. Okay, so essentially the way it works for tax purposes, the taxpayer gives us their property. We then sell it, we take the proceeds from that sale, we buy a property from another party, and give that property to our client in exchange for the one they gave us. So they're swapping with us essentially. That's a very cumbersome transaction, which if you think about it, that's four sets of deeds, right? Two on each side of the transaction, four sets of transfer costs. You know, uh, our title insurance company, Madison Title, would love that transaction. There could be four title insurance premiums, right? Um, but they made it much simpler than that. And so it's enough that we just take assignment of both contracts and the money flows through us. Okay, so in your scenario, you have three properties that you want to sell. You want to go buy that big multifamily. The way it would work is in order to make this work, you have to get those three sales to line up pretty quickly together, right? Because we have some deadlines that are involved. So let's assume, you know, we sell them all in a couple of days. Uh, within a couple of days of each other, we then have 45 days from the closing of the first sale to identify the property we want to purchase. That means we're going to give a list of up to three potential properties to the qualified intermediary uh, that we're interested in purchasing. Okay, you could do more, but there's some additional rules that apply. But in your scenario, we're only going to identify one um, because we know we're going from three to one. We then also, from the closing of the first sale, have 180 days to close on that multifamily property. Okay. Uh, the 45 days goes pretty quickly. That's usually where people run into problems. The 180 days usually is a little bit easier to, to meet. Once you're ready to buy that property, again, we take assignment of the contract of sale. We advance the proceeds on your behalf and you complete the exchange. The deed goes from you know, seller to buyer, okay? Uh, on, on each side of the exchange. And that's essentially in a nutshell. It's really not that different than selling and buying property. The main difference is there's some additional documentation uh, and the money has to flow to us. One thing I want to mention though is you need to set up your exchange before you close on anything. Because a couple times a month we do get phone calls from people saying, you know, hey Mike, I want to do a 1031 exchange. And I'll say, great, when's the closing? And they'll say, oh, we closed two weeks ago. And uh, unfortunately it's too late at that point, right? The toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't put it back in. Uh, you have to set up the exchange in advance and the money has to come directly to us. Okay, so, so it sounds like um, very similar to um, when you're transferring money into a Roth IRA or a self-directed IRA, you don't physically touch it yourself. All the transfer is being done behind the scenes, uh, really. So is that the purpose of the qualified intermediary to make sure that the money stays clean coming from one individual to the other? And so I, I guess to prevent the owner or the person who is doing that 1031 exchange from taking out any money and potentially having a taxable event? Is that the purpose? 
it's not really that. It's actually a little bit more esoteric than that. So okay. again, we, we go back to, and I should mention, 1031 has been in the tax code since the 1920s. So this is not some loophole, it's a well-established law, but it goes back to this concept of it has to be a swap of property for property. So the whole foundation of 1031 is that two parties are trading properties and there's no cash changing hands because if the cash is changing hands, then it's taxable. When you get the cash, it's called recognizing the gain and you have to pay taxes on it. So by keeping the cash out of the taxpayer's hands, they're not recognizing the gain. For tax purposes, they're receiving one property for another. It's a swap, and therefore, that's why they don't have to pay taxes. Okay. Okay. I think that's, a, that's an inter interesting uh, distinction there. Um, it sounds like regardless, uh, you should talk to a, a qualified intermediary to, to do this exchange for you because I can imagine trying to do this yourself is uh, gets gets really tricky and you end up costing yourself taxes in the end. Well, you need to have a qualified intermediary to do it, unless you're doing a direct swap, which is, like I said, very rare. But if you're right. doing selling from one person and buying from another, you'll need a qualified intermediary. It's one of the safe harbors under the regulations. Uh, so yeah, we, we like that. Talk to people pretty early in the process, certainly before closing. Um, if you give us a couple of weeks prior to closing, that's, that's ideal. We are able to do the, uh, the fire drill where you call us from the closing table and we'll get you documents. Uh, but we won't be happy about it. <laughs> yeah. Right. We'll, we'll put on the smile. We'll get it done for you, but there'll be a lot of rumbling in the background while we're, we're generating the documents. But no, I, I kid, we can get it done fairly quickly. But the mm -hmm. downside of that is now you've decided to do an exchange at the last minute, which means you're only starting to shop the day that you're closed and a month and a half is not a lot of time to go find property. Right. So that's really the disadvantage. I also recommend that taxpayers talk to their accountant before they even list the property, make sure that the transaction makes sense, you know, because you may be getting great cash flow from your property. It may make no sense whatsoever to sell it because there's nothing else in the marketplace. I mean, pre pandemic, we were pretty much in every part of the country in a seller's market. And it's really hard with cap rate compression to find something that's going to generate as good a return as maybe what you have already. Yeah. yeah that makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. So regardless, talk to the experts and, and figure out if it's right for you uh, to do a 1031. So, so let me ask you this. Let's say instead of selling my three properties and buying a multifamily property myself, I wanted to 1031 exchange into a syndication and, and become a passive investor. Is that possible? And, and if so, how does that work? It's possible, but it's tricky. So yeah. the issue that you have with buying in a syndication is the 1031 exchange rules require that you have to have a property interest. So this, the taxpayer that sells that relinquished property has to say, be the same taxpayer that actually buys the replacement property. And there is an exclusion, uh, or it was, and now it's just a broad exclusion, um, against exchanging partnership interests, okay? So what you're doing, if you're buying into a traditional syndicate, you may be selling in your own name or in your own entity or however you have it set up. But when you invest in the syndicate, you're not buying a property interest. You're buying an interest in a limited liability company. It's typically you set up as a limited partnership, mm -hmm. right? And so you're getting a partnership interest, which is not like kind to the real estate that you sold. It's quite frankly, a silly distinction in my opinion, because a partnership is a flow through entity, you know, it does file a tax return, but it doesn't really have a tax existence. It's not going to pay taxes. So really, the ownership should be considered to flow through to the partners, but it doesn't. So the way you would have to do this is you would have to buy, and what's typically done is you would have to buy a tenant in common interest in the property with the other 
IPO investors. The way we've seen this work is that, you know, if you're, if you're the syndicator, so you have a syndicator, you know, she's the person that found the property. Uh, she's lining up the investors for the property. She may be putting in, you know, um, usually some of her own money, but it's probably not proportionate to the interest that she's ultimately going to have. Um, you know, there's going to be preferred turns, returns that are offered to her limited partners, you know, after which she would earn a return. And she's going to earn, you know, both um, on the acquisition of the property, she'll earn fees, and on the sale of the property, she'll earn fees. She'll have a management fee typically for overseeing the property and find buyers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but she, let's say she puts in 10% of the equity, she might get a 30%, you know, share of the deal. And those numbers are kind of probably imaginary, I realize, but, you know, simplicity. Um, you know, so she puts the 10% of the equity, she's getting 30%, you know, 30% interest in the partnership. Uh, that's great. You could do that all day long when it's not 1031 money. In 1031 money, when you're setting up a tenant in common, okay, first of all, the investor has to have a deeded interest in the property and they have to receive an interest that equals their investment in the deal. So if they're putting in 30% of the equity, they need to get a 30% ownership interest in the property. They need to have 30% of the profits, 30% of the responsibility for the losses and a whole bunch of other things. So that doesn't jive real well with a syndicated entity where we kind of do different things. Uh, so the way you would do it is you'd have two entities, right? So you'd have this, the syndicated entity, which you could do whatever you would typically do in a syndicated structure. And then the 1031 investor, would come in in a separate entity. It would be their limited liability company. They would be the sole member. It would be disregarded for tax purposes. And the two entities would own the property together. They would have a tenant in common agreement between them that would basically share everything proportionately. And maybe at some point down the road, maybe two to three years down the road, you could then kind of wrap everything into the one entity and go forward. Um, the syndicator could still earn a management fee for the overlying property. Uh, if you want to get aggressive, one of the concerns about doing this structure is an attendant common investment. You know, everybody has uh, kind of a veto right over the sale of the property, which can be a concern to a syndicator. So the syndicator can actually require that they're made the manager of the 1031 entity as well. Um, that's a little bit aggressive. Some attorneys and accounts aren't comfortable with that. Uh, but the reg, it's not even a reg, it's a, um, a revenue procedure you know, doesn't prohibit it outright or doesn't, you know, it's not one of the conditions the IRS looks at in determining whether you're a partnership or a tick. Um, but who knows? You don't know if you got audited ultimately how that would be looked at, but that's, that's something we've seen. Okay. So, so for the, so the learners that are listening, um, if they want to 1031 exchange into a syndication, they need to tell the operators up front that they want to do that because it is, Long, long short short is very different than how you structure the organization or the entity that is purchasing the property. So if I'm understanding this correctly and, and tell me if I'm, if I'm simplifying this too much, there is an LLC entity that is purchasing the property. And within that LLC, you have the syndication LLC, and then you have the tenant in common LLC structure. Is that yeah. roughly right? You're, you missed one step. So the, you won't have that overlying LLC. There'll just okay. be two LLCs buying the property. Got it. Okay. Understood. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's a difference. The other thing that I would mention um, in doing that, that you have to be careful of. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, what I want to say is do, you need to plan it in advance. You don't want to hit the syndicator up at the last minute and say, this is what I'm doing. I actually talked to a syndicator recently who had an investor do that. Um, 
they didn't realize and they, they thought they could do it and it, it turned into, you know, a little bit chaotic. They got it done. But the other thing is, as the syndicator, you're probably not going to do this for a very small investment, right? If somebody's coming in with 2% of the equity, you're not going to jump through these hoops. Uh, somebody's coming in with 30, 40% of the equity. Now, maybe you're a little bit, you know, more willing to kind of jump through the hoops and set up the structure that way. Right, right. So I was going to ask that. So is it, I'm sure it's a lot of work to get this done, but are there an, a lot of extra fees associated with setting up a tenant and comment agreement like this versus just a normal syndication? It, it really shouldn't be, should not be. I mean, you know, it's, it, the documentation's not that extensive. Um, as, as far as the formation structure, I don't actually know, and I have an answer to this about the, uh, some of the securities issues you might face. Okay. That may be something to look at. I'm not an expert in that area, but certainly something as a syndicator, you want to explore with your, you know, with your, uh, your securities attorney, um, you know, what you need to do as far as the offering, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but as far as the actual structure, it's a pretty simple agreement between the, the two entities and how things are managed. Interesting. Okay. So, so let's do the flip of that. Let's say that we're selling the property at you know, the end of five years and we have some individuals who want to 1031 exchange, but they are limited partners. Let's say that they have you know, $50,000 in the limited partnership and they want to 1031 exchange that money into another property. Can you talk to me how through that, how that would work? Yeah, so again, it's the same issue because the limited partnership owns the property. The limited partnership, if all the investors stay together, they can do a 1031 exchange, no problem, right? You just have one, the same entity go buy the replacement property. If they want to separate, this is probably the most common issue we come across is how do we separate? And the way you have to do it is you do what I just talked about in reverse. You drop out of the partnership into a tenant in common structure. So the LLC will deed each of the owners, or maybe it's only some people that want to separate. You'll deed them a percentage interest in the property, okay, into their names or their entity. They'll hold it as tenants in common. And as tenants in common, they can go sell separately to the same buyer and go their separate ways. So somebody can cash out if they want, and somebody can, you know, uh, do their 1031 exchange. The downside of doing that or, or the risk in doing that is that you should have some advanced planning. You don't want to necessarily do this at the last minute because um, the IRS has taken the position in the past that, as I said, you have to hold the property for investment, which usually relates to a longer term hold, you know, usually at least a year, two to five years, whatever. So your LLC that's selling may have held the property for five years and have a great you know, uh, example of having held the property for investment, but when they deed the property out to the partners as tenants in common, if they're doing this on the eve of closing, they may only own the property in their own name, you know, five minutes, you know? So the argument that's been made in the past in court is that um, they haven't, as partners, they haven't held the property for investment. Okay. And so therefore their exchanges could be invalidated. The good news is by and large, the IRS has not been successful when they've litigated those cases. Okay. So they've kind of backed off. We don't really see too many, uh, cases where the IRS is challenging those transactions. So that's not to say that they couldn't, but they just don't seem to be because they don't have the resources. Right. Um, but the bad news is that the states have kind of taken up the argument and some of the states are challenging these transactions, particularly California has aggressively pursued these cases. And uh, New York has actually started to question 
some of these what we call drop and swap transactions. Uh, California did have a case in their own tax courts where they actually lost a, a kind of last minute drop and swap. It was kind of an odd case the way it was decided. I don't know that the, uh, the rationale makes a lot of sense, but it's something that's out there and it, it's case law. Uh, I don't know that California necessarily respects that decision, so they could go back and you know, relitigate another case with similar facts. Um, and New York, what we're hearing is New York um, is questioning them. I haven't heard anything about really aggressive action with New York beyond that, but that's not to say that it's not happening. I just don't know about it. Interesting. So to, to make sure that you're in alignment with what the IRS considers to be, you know, a, an investment property or investment holding in this case, how long do you, do you think that uh, syndicators should create this tenant in common structure? Let's say, you know, two years, a year in advance of when they want to sell. I mean, how long is long enough to be able to kind of meet that wicket? Yeah, you know, and I, I don't, that's a great question. And I don't know that there's a magic number, right? So certainly I think at a minimum, if you're going to do this, the tick structure should be set up before you, maybe even before you market the property. What you really want to do is the tick structuring should be a separate transaction from the actual sale of the property. You know, so if you did it before you marketed the property, you know, and then you went out and sold it as a tick, you know, I, I think that goes a long way. Um, Doing it last minute, like I said, is aggressive. It's hard to make that argument that you held it for investment. Again, it's a distinction I quite frankly find silly. Uh, I think it's, well, again, another esoteric thing that we have in the tax code that there's this different level of structuring and therefore we shouldn't be able to do this. Um, again, facts, the facts are that it's, you know, partnership's a shell entity. It doesn't have, it doesn't pay taxes, so who cares? But enough, enough government agencies care that you have to kind of respect it and be careful. So, mm -hmm. um, so that the safe answer, I think, is you know, certainly before you go to contract, ideally, if you did it two years before, I think you've got a home run. Um, unfortunately, you know, there's some negativity to doing it that way because then you worry about when you go to sell the property, will everybody agree to sell? You know, whereas if you're in a syndicated entity, the limited partners have no say, right? right. The syndicator says, we're selling. That's it. <laughs> you're taking the ride. And so there, there are some transactional issues that, that arise, but if you had a, a pretty good relationship with all your partners, you know, you may want to set it up as a tick from the get go, uh, or, you know, certainly do it well in advance of planning to sell the property. Understood. Gotcha. So let's say that we, you know, we're, we're approaching, I don't know, six months out from wanting to sell this property. We have 40 investors. Half of them want to do the 1031 exchange and half of them don't. The half that don't, do we have to, do we just leave them in the LLC or, or sorry, leave them as limited partners and the 20 that do, each of them get ticked in or however you want to verb that, they get put into a tenant and common agreement as each individual investor or are they joined together as a new separate tenant in common with just all of those 20 investors together? Does that, does that question make sense? Yeah, I, I think it depends on what, what, what the objective is. So if it's the 20 investors are going to go 20 separate ways, you got to create 20 separate, you know, ticks, you know, essentially they'll usually you wouldn't do it in their own name. You would basically each of those 20 people would set up a limited liability company and you would deed it to the 20 limited liability companies. Right. right. Um, that obviously is a mess, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. but it may be necessary if you have that many people, if they're staying together, and you had 20 people who wanted out, what I would do is I would keep the 20 who wanted to stay together, keep them in the existing entity. 
Um, and there, there, there's another structure where we create kind of, uh, we can uh, kind of split the partnership, and but each would be a continuation of the partnership, um, which is an interesting structure that could work. Also, it's, I almost need a, uh, a chalkboard to kind of diagram that, but that's, that's a little bit more advanced. There are some other things that we could do uh, where if you had that situation. Um, the other, the cleanest way to do this, which we, we kind of skipped over is, you know, let's say you're a syndicator and you only have five investors who uh, don't want to take the ride. They want to cash out. If you have the ability, just buy them out before, right? Just pay them out now, buy them now and then sell the property, get them out. But that's not, you know, usually cash flow could be an issue there. Right, right. Um, you know, if it's a small amount. So, um, but, uh, or, and the other option that you have is that you could always make everybody take the ride at the, the LLC, you know, sell the LLC, buy. And then the flip side, you refi the property and then you buy them out. You know, that's another possibility. You know, so there are some options, that, you know, if you're a syndicator, it certainly makes sense to start talking about the options, you know, maybe even before you form the syndicate, but certainly before you go to, to sell, you know, right. because there are some options out there that we work with. Okay. Understood. So I got one more question for you before we get into the snapshot round. Now, yeah. let's say that we're not doing a syndication, we're doing a joint venture and every partner is active, but one of the partners wants to bring in 1031 exchange money. Is that still, do you still have to do a tenant in common agreement like that? Or for example, every active partner in that joint venture has a equity position on that property, right? They each own a, a separate portion at least of the LLC that's going to purchase the property. So are we running into the same issue as you would with the syndication and that the LLC that you form to kind of uh, to solidify this joint venture owns the property versus it, each individual. And so then you'd have to have a tenant in common structure, or is it okay that you have joint venture partners who are all technically active within the deal, each owning, you know, an equity position of that property? Yeah, again, the issue is going to be that they don't earn an, they don't have an equity position in the property, they have it in the entity, you know, so they are still going to be a partnership, you, you know, uh, so you, you still need a tech structure, you know, it's not so much the active passive distinction, it's the fact that it's a partnership versus a tenant in common. Okay. All right. And I just want to throw some lingo out there for people who get bored at night. What you want to look at in forming a tick is Rev, Revenue Procedure 2002-22, which is not a safe harbor for the accountants out there, but gives some guidance on what the IRS would look at if you were to get a private letter ruling or request a private letter ruling saying that you were a tick versus a, a partnership. Got it. Okay. Understood. Understood. All right. Uh, are you ready to get into the snapshot round, Michael? Yeah, sure. All right. Here we go. All ahead, flank cavitate. Snapshot, tube tube. Michael, what is the what is your number one failure in real estate? And you can relate this maybe to your clients' failures as well. Uh, yeah. So my personal one actually involves a primary residence, <laughs> okay. uh, not an investment so much. So I had the opportunity when I was much younger to go buy a piece of property uh, out. East, I live on Long Island in New York, and I had some the opportunity to buy some property uh, or a house actually uh, in uh, an eastern part of Long Island. Uh, but at the time, it was number one. It would have increased my daily commute as an attorney by about forty minutes, <laughs> and it also was probably it was uh, double the price of what I actually paid for my the house. I did wind up buying. 
Uh, and of course, double at that point, if you can believe this or not, was it was a difference of going from, uh, I think, $150,000 to $300,000, right? So we're not talking about, you know, 500 to a million. It was, you know, now the money seems so small, but back then it was, you know, it may as well have been a million dollars. And so that property is probably worth, you know, multiples uh, of what, what uh, my current house is, but also uh, just was such a beautiful house. And, you know, if I had stretched and kind of tried to make a thing, you know, make it work. And I wound up leaving that job anyway and <laughs> working closer. So uh, th that's on the downside. The For clients though, the biggest issue that I see um, is people who wait till that last minute and then they rush and they buy garbage, right? Mm -hmm. So I always say, um, and maybe I'm answering one of your other lightning round questions, but you know, <laughs> you're better off paying taxes than buying a bad real estate investment. With taxes, you know what your downside is. Your downside is you're going to pay 30%. If you're buying a, a, you know, a bad property, you can lose a lot more than 30%. So in many cases, you might be better off paying the taxes. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. Uh, what is the number one thing that's contributed to your success? Uh, I think curiosity and education, right? So uh, I'm just a person that, that loves to learn. And so I'm constantly reading, I'm constantly, you know, attending seminars and the more information you have and anybody getting involved in real estate, the more information you have, I think the better off you, you'll be. If you can understand things like cap rate, if you can understand cash flow, cash on cash return, uh, if you can understand demographics of a neighborhood and, and kind of look ahead and see, you know, what might create value that's not presently in a property um, I think that'll help you be much more successful than, you know, somebody who, you know, gets lucky all the time, which there are a bunch of people in a good economy. It's easy to get lucky and think you're a genius in a bad economy. You realize, you know, it takes a little bit more than, uh, than luck. Right. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. And you may have answered this one, um, already, but what is one nugget of investing knowledge you want to give us? Yeah, so I, I kind of mentioned one is don't buy a bad, you're better off paying taxes than buying a bad real estate investment. The other thing I'd, I'd, I'd say is due diligence, right? You, you should always understand what you're investing in. So, you know, and I'll give you an example. I had the, this is a, a, a good example of where I made a good decision. So um, 2006 or seven, I forget when, I was offered the opportunity to buy um, some condos down in, in Miami. Oh no, I'm sorry. It was Orlando. It was Orlando. Uh, it was a converted uh, multifamily. They were converting it to condos and the sponsor who was selling these properties was going to guarantee the rent for two years. seemed like a, you know, a no, you know, a, you couldn't lose situation. Right. You know, you figured you got guaranteed rent. So I started thinking about it and they were building Orlando and, and Orlando and was, Orlando was going to get a new convention center. There was like a lot of dike things they threw out there, but I looked at it and I said, well, first of all, Orlando seems to me like I knew the market a little bit. We were doing several hundred transactions, uh, actually several thousand transactions a year in Florida overall, which seemed unsustainable. There was a lot of the, you know, people selling contracts and making hundreds of thousands of dollars. They weren't even closing. They were just, go to contract, sell the contract. The market seemed overheated. And when they talked about the rent guarantee, that was attractive. But then I said to them, well, what are you going to do in two years? You know, when the rent isn't guaranteed and everybody looks to sell. 
you know, you're going to be kind of stuck. Well, that was 2006. Cut to 2008. If you know your history in real estate, 2008 was as bad, probably maybe worse than we're, we're experienced with the pandemic now. Uh, and so the world fell apart and I would have been stuck holding the bag on that property, which ultimately probably was worth half of what I would have paid for it. Um, so again, it was doing due diligence, understanding the market kind of saved me in that, in that investment. So do your due diligence, understand what you're looking at, understand the marketplace and, you know, don't just do it because everybody else is doing it. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right, Michael. And then one last question. What is your dream? Uh, what is my dream? That's a great question. Uh, you know, uh, financial independence and uh, free time, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's popular and it's been popular for a while. You and I are both on LinkedIn. You see these people who, you know, they live to work. Right. And I certainly love my job. I love doing what I do, but I love my free time, you know, and I think, um, I think that's something that really has to drive you also, right? If you're just working for the sake of work, you know, I guess some people can do that for me. Uh, I like to get away. I like to, I'm a runner, you know, um, you know, I run five, six days a week, uh, during, um, in, uh, New York. So it's seasonal, but I like to paddleboard. Uh, I have three boys, love to spend time with my boys and my wife. You know, those are the things that kind of drive my life. And so I'm looking forward to that point where, you know, I got some, hopefully, all my money income is passive and I can kind of kick back in and then do, you know, I will always be busy. I'll always be a person who's working, but I'd like to do it kind of more without the pressures of income. So I can do more volunteer work. I'm pretty active in, in the community. Um, and I would like to just kind of do more of that. Makes sense. I love it. Legacy. Perfect. Michael, I have learned a lot. So I appreciate you coming on here today and sharing your, your wealth of knowledge on 1031 exchanges. And, um, if people want to find out more about you or contact you, where can they go? Yeah, so you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I try to stay up on that. Uh, probably email is the best. I'm, I keep joking around that. I'm not one of those people that learn the four-hour work week, so I'm constantly checking my email. I don't just do it <laughs> twice a day. Uh, but you can send an email to mbrady at madison1031.com, and I'm pretty good about responding to emails. Okay. Yeah, we'll include that in the, uh, in the show notes as well. But uh, again, Michael, I appreciate you coming on here today and uh, I hope you have an awesome rest of your day and I hope you stay safe back in the, in the States because it sounds like it's trying times right now. Yeah, it's challenging. I don't know what it's like by you, but it's uh, yeah, challenging times here, but it looks like- it One more thing before you go. Kind of turn I want to be real for a second. You stay safe as well. If you are enjoying stay the show, great. please yep, leave us a one five-star rating sure. and review. It goes a long way to promoting the show and continuing to bring you great content from stellar guests. I read every rating and it helps me develop the best practices and give you the best possible version of me and the show. If you have any comments, recommend topics or guests, you can reach out to me at anthony at pintocapitalinvestments.com and we can connect. That's all I have folks. Catch you next time on the Lessons in Real Estate Show.